I'll give a hand to Mari and the team. Thanks, guys, for filling in today. Great job. Thank you for singing, Labor Day crowd. I'm impressed. It's a little harder when there's not as many in here, but you did a good job. Um, I have one more announcement before we move forward with the uh, sermon today, and that's partnership classes. Those are coming up in a few weeks. Uh, I've had a lot of you over the last few weeks say, hey, I'm interested in becoming a member. What does that look like? How does that process work? Um, And if you'd like more information about that, uh, these classes will help with that. It's a four-week process. Uh, It's not a prerequisite. It's not like you have to do this to become a member. If you want to read about how membership works at our church, it's online in our constitution or in the paper copy of our church constitution. But if you do want more uh, more in-depth and want to do that personally and get to know us a little bit, uh, myself and the other church staff will be involved. That's going to be September 29th through October 20th, four weeks on Sunday nights. It'll be from 6.30 to 8. There is child care available, so if you're interested in that, please RSVP through the city or at office at begrace.org. Um, and also, there's usually snacks there, so you could come to the evening service and get snacks, and then come to the class and get more snacks. We're just all snacked up, so that'll be great. Um, today, if you have a Bible, will you turn to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. This is our last week, third week, in kind of our core value series. So, Back to school time, we like to just reassess and, and re-communicate who we are. Pray back through, think back through, talk back through. Okay, God, what have you called us to do? So today, we're going to look at our core practices. They're on the website. They're on a poster there in the hallway. This is not anything necessarily new, but a lot of you are new. And so we want to talk about what do we do here, right? Two weeks ago, we looked at the Great Commission, and we talked about God's call for us to multiply and make disciples among every people group. And then the next week, we talked about how that works its way out as a church, but also as individuals, that we've got to be trusting in God's grace. It's not by our own strength. It's by God's grace at working us through Jesus. We have to submit to the Bible. We need to begin to align ourselves with what God tells us to do, and that's only possible if we know that he's gracious. And then the final part of that is being the church, that we are God's plan for the world. We are to be his hands and his feet. We're to share Jesus in words and in deeds in the world. And so we talked last week about that, trusting God's grace, submitting to the Bible, being his church. This week, we're going to go through our core practices. Now, this week's going to be a little tricky because there's six of them. And those of you who've been around a while, you know I only do three-point sermons. So if you'll just pray for me, it's kind of fritzing me out a little bit that I've, I've got to do six. And, you know, I don't want it to be like a three-hour sermon. So we're going to, we're going to try to press through this. We're going to look at these Um, what we call means of grace, how we see them in Acts chapter 2, and then see how that's translated in our church practices, what we do as a church. Um, Churches, historically different denominations and groups, would talk about the things that God tells us to do to, to bring, to communicate, to receive God's grace. God's grace works through people and he delivers it to us historically. Uh, from the Reformation, they would talk about God's grace coming through uh, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, and through prayer, right? These are ways that we receive God's grace. They're not like magic. There's nothing in and of themselves, but they're ways for us to submit by faith and hear what God has to say to us about Jesus, about who he is. And so we've got six practices, which are things that we feel like God's told us to do, And this is how a church is supposed to function. Now, a little introduction to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of what Jesus did after Jesus went to heaven after his resurrection, right? 
So Luke and Acts are both written by Luke, and he gives a little introduction in both of them saying, I went through and I gave an account of stuff that really happened, right? So they're not just made up fairy tales. This is stuff that really happened. He asked eyewitnesses. He talked to people. He was a traveling companion of Paul the Apostle, and he sets out this account. Luke is what Jesus did before the resurrection, and then Acts is what Jesus did after the resurrection. So we need to understand, again, that Jesus is at work in his church. He's working through the Holy Spirit and through his people in the book of Acts. Now, there's a basic Bible interpretation principle that says when you read a narrative or a story about stuff that Bible people did, it's dangerous to just go, anything that Bible people did, I should do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like take Abraham, for instance. Abraham did bad things. So we don't read those Sunday school stories and tell kids, be like Abraham. No, no, don't be like Abraham, right? I mean, maybe in his faith, but not in the stuff he did. So we have to be very careful when we're looking at the scriptures and looking at a story of what Bible people did. We don't want to just automatically or mechanically apply everything they did. Now, the other side of that is Luke wrote Acts to give us an idea of how God is at work through his people. So the way that we work that out is we align what we see God's people doing in Acts, these kind of examples, we align that with what we're commanded to do in the rest of the New Testament, right? So you can kind of put together uh, a systematic, uh, weave together a systematic understanding of how God is at work in the world, what he wants his people, what he wants his church to do. So these are things we believe God's called us to do, and I'm going to read Acts. We'll see how some of these are evident here in the early church, in the very beginnings of the church. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus has left him. He said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit's going to give you power, and you're going to be my witnesses to the whole world. So that has just happened. The Holy Spirit exploded on them. There was this crazy tongues of fire on people's heads. They were speaking the works of God in different languages. And all the different tribes that were gathered around or the Jews that were from different nations speaking different languages heard God's word in their language. And so it's, it's already started to happen here. The, the word is breaking out and we're picking up in the middle of Peter's big sermon here. Okay, so Acts chapter 2, let's start in verse 36. Acts chapter 2, 36. And I think I forgot to say there's, there are Bibles under the chairs. It's page 911 on the Bibles under the chairs if you want to follow there. Or 910. Somewhere around there. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this is like the peak of his message. He's already preached a whole sermon. You can go back and read the rest of it this week. He's talking about Jesus. He is Lord. He's in charge. He's all dominion. It says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, this message, this promise, he says, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So if we were going to mechanically apply this as like an example, right, we'd go, well, if we do these things, then we'd have 3,000 people, you know, come in immediately, right? We want to be careful not to apply it too mechanically, but we also want to notice, hey, they cared how many people came in, Right? In our spirituality, sometimes we think it's wrong to count, 
or wrong to celebrate what God is at work doing. But we try to be careful about that. We try to not become obsessed with numbers. Look how many people we crowded in today. But also, we try to celebrate it. And we say, look what God did. That's exciting. 3,000 people came to meet Jesus. It's incredible. We should celebrate these things. Verse 42 now gives us what they uh, devoted themselves to. What were they about? These new Christians, this new baby church being formed now post-resurrection. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So again, he's continuing to, to grow his church. Let me pray for us and we'll look at this in more detail. God, we pray that you would grow your church. We pray that more and more would be added that know you. And we ask that not just for this local congregation, God, but for your church worldwide, your people. You would bring more and more people to yourself, that you would use us in the process. We thank you and we're humbled that you want to use us. We pray that you would continue to move your power through us, that we Uh, would be means of your grace, that we would transmit your grace to those around us, that we would be faithful to do what you tell us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we're having the same problem we had last week. Just hold just a minute. I'm going to turn the air conditioner on. Everybody hot? Let me ask the men. Men, are y'all hot? Okay. It's like, it won't go down. There we go. Okay. Sorry, last week I'd lost 10 pounds by the end of the sermon, and that's not good for me. Well, as we were thinking about this idea of of means of grace, how God communicates his his power through people, through things that he calls us to do, I was remembering something that happened to me when I was a kid. In in the eighth grade, I was uh, going with a friend to ride horses. Uh, My mom uh, grew up on a farm and rode horses a lot, so I got to do that a lot as a kid. She tried to give me those opportunities in different places and different times, and one time we were going with another friend who had another friend that had a horse, going out to ride horses. And uh, how many of y'all have ever ridden a horse, by the way? Okay, yeah. All right, we're Texans, right? We all have horses and cowboy hats, right? Okay. And uh, that's what those of you that are new to the area think, but it's not really that, that way. But I was out there, you know, going to ride the horse, and we were waiting for the, the third horse to get saddled up or something, and mine was tied to the, to the uh, fence post. And so I'm just kind of waiting there, and, you know, I'm just kind of leaning there, and all of a sudden, this incredible force like shot through me, this incredible pain, I should say, and it's just like, bam, into my foot. It just scared me to death. I kind of jumped back, and I, I looked over the horse because I thought, okay, the, the gigantic beast is stomping on me or something. I thought he had stepped on my foot, and my friends were just laughing, and the horse was sitting there still. The horse hadn't done anything. And I was completely confused, and my friends were just laughing, and by, you know, by the time they could stop laughing enough to explain it, they said, you were leaning on an electric fence. <laughs> and, and so, for those of you that are like electrical engineers, maybe you could explain how it's actually working after the service. I don't understand how that power went through me, but I know it went through me, right? I, I felt it. It was this explosion. So I don't know if that was like a grounding thing or the rubber sole of my shoes, but it was 
like this explosion in my foot shooting through my whole body. I felt it there, but it was coursing through all of me. And, and I use that as an illustration, a, a painful illustration, but a, an illustration that, that God's power will work through us even though we don't understand how it works, right? Like, I don't completely understand how God works. And one of the dangers of the medieval scholastic period in theology is that we tried to explain every little thing that God was doing, right? Like, we tried to get down into the nitty-gritty and explain all the details. We don't really understand it, okay? We don't really get how His grace works, but we know it does. We know His grace works through us, and there are particular things that He asks us to do, and when we do those, His power, His grace, His Spirit is channeled through us in the things that we do. People see His grace. People receive His grace. People hear Him calling to them and submit their lives to Him in a way that they never have before. And so today we want to share the six core practices that we've made our central lanes of effort and operation in this church saying, this is what we're going to be about. And this came from before this church existed. We started just seven years ago. Before we existed, we had, uh, we had leaders in Temple, at Temple Bible Church, where the bad people are. They, they got stuff. That's my little joke. They're, not, they're good people. But they, they had these ideas of this is what the church should be about, and we need to start another congregation in Colleen, right? And so when we start this, we need to be about some basic things. What are the things that we're going to do? What are the basics that God has called us to? And so like I said, these are things that can be found in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 1. They're also commands that are told to the church throughout the New Testament. So this is going to be a little different, and then I'm going to kind of zip through six applications of scriptural truth, focusing on what we're supposed to do, trusting that you will see all of the connections. I'm going to try to cite scripture as we go along. If you're new here, this is not our normal practice. What we normally do is we go through the scriptures and just unpack it, starting with the scripture and pulling it out from there. So what I would say is these, these are core practices that we have pulled out of Scripture, but now it's like I'm pushing them back in, right? You know, it's like now I'm working in reverse to say these are things we've been about for seven years. We feel like God's called us to in multiple different places in Scripture. He said this is important here and here and here, different, different places. Um, in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7, Paul has a great illustration of this idea of grace working through his people. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 7. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God works through us. One of us might be watering. One of us might be planting. One of you shares with a neighbor and you don't feel like it's going anywhere. And then another friend 10 years later shares more and, and God's grace is lit fire in their heart and they, they love Jesus. They they change. We don't always see the full picture, but God is at work and God is growing his people. He's calling his people to himself. And so what we're going to talk about this morning are the things that we feel like he's told us to do. We're like, okay, I don't know everything, but I know I need to do this. I know I need to do this. The first thing that I want us to talk about is our, four, our first core practice is dependent prayer. Dependent prayer. The, the way we define this is calling on the lordship and power of Jesus Christ. When we get together as leaders at this church and we do our kind of strategic planning and we talk about how we're doing in the different areas, the other practices of missional communities and preaching Christ and worship and uh, global outreach and these other things, 
uh, we always remind ourselves that of all our lanes of effort and all of our strategies, all of our planning, the, the master plan, the meta plan is this one. This is the most important lane, prayer. We, we can't do anything without prayer. And talk about not understanding how things work. We don't understand how that works, right? God, God has uh, decided it pleases him to use us as we call on him for help. He already knows, but he wants us to talk to him. And, and he asks us to talk to him. He asks us to lean on him in prayer. This church is seven years old, and there were uh, leaders and people that lived in this community, leaders at Temple Bible Church, praying for this church before it ever existed. Before anyone knew who you were, or who I was, or how this would happen, or where we would meet, people were praying, and now this church exists. I want to show you that that goes farther back than just one generation, though. It goes back 50 generations, right? Because we see in Acts chapter 2, the first Christians devoted themselves to prayers. As in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. They were praying. They were saying, God, your kingdom come. Establish it here on earth. Use us to share Jesus and what he's done with other people. And that had a rippling out effect from the Middle East to where we stand here today. Different tribes and tongues and people from, from different countries. We're, we're here in this room because of what started there, those prayers, God working through the prayers of his people. If you look back at Acts 1.14, we see, uh, oh, that's the wrong, the wrong one. one. Yeah, 1.14, I was looking at the wrong chapter. 1.14 in Acts says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So even before where we picked up in Acts chapter 2, they were already praying before all of that exploded on the scene. The, the apostles, Jesus' followers, were devoting themselves to prayer. They were seeking God, asking God to move, and God moved. And so we've said, that's, that's important. We're, we're going to do that. We're going to pray here. We're going to be praying people. We're going to ask God to show his grace, to move by his mercy in our community and, and across the world. The other example of a core practice is leadership development. And I've linked this with prayer because in Acts one fourteen we see the first leaders that Jesus sent out, the apostles, we see them praying. And that's really our story as well. We had leaders before this church was established praying that God would do a work here. And one of the ways that they felt like God was telling them it's time to start this work in 2006 was God began sending leaders that wanted to make disciples to that church there that lived here. So there were leaders here that wanted to help start a work in Colleen that started commuting to the church and temple. And so the elders at that church started saying, okay, we, we feel like God is putting this thing together. Like he's starting to say, we're, we're ready to do this. Let, let's start this. And so we believe, again, that that shouldn't just die in one generation but leaders are always to be developing other leaders. And so the way we state this core practice is developing servant leaders who shepherd others. Um, and I think it's really important that you notice that this is a plural term. It's very, very important to us. It's not uh, developing a pastor to develop another pastor to develop another pastor in a singular sense. It's developing a team of leaders. I have the great privilege of serving with a team of elders. So as the preaching pastor, as the senior pastor at this church, I get to talk the most. I, I am seen the most. I get to 
uh, be the, the mouthpiece for the elders, but I'm a part of a team. I, I serve at their pleasure and with them as a team. And so I think that's a really important strength that Grace Bible Church has. Not only at, at the top level of leadership, the, the elders of the church are the, are the bottom line leaders of our church, a team of men, but we believe in training up other leaders. Uh, the, the way it's stated in, Acts, or in Ephesians chapter 4 is that the, the gifted men are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. All of the church is to do the work of the ministry. We're all ministers. We're all servants. We're all called to be in ministry. So it's not that I do ministry or the elders do ministry or just the Sunday school teachers do ministry. We all do ministry. We're all ministering to those around us all the time. And the question is, are you doing it well or doing it poorly? Are you praying about it or are you just doing it haphazardly? Are you seeking God in the ministry and the stewardship he's given you, the, the friends, the family, the coworkers, the people that he's put around you, the opportunities he's put around you? Are you being faithful there or are you just throwing it away and ignoring it? That's the call, that we would serve well. And so that's a core value for us. And like I said, I think one of the, one of the great strengths of our church that, that over the years we've had multiple leaders and our plan is to continue to develop more leaders. 2 Timothy 2.2 says uh, to train faithful men that can train others, that can train others, that can train others. It, it has to keep going. It can't just stop with one generation. And so that looks like training leaders here and bringing more people into service and ministry here in this church, sending more people out in ministry and service as the army takes you all over the world, helping to plant other churches, helping to partner with other uh, missionaries and doing, doing things in every way possible. A friend once asked me about my strategic ministry plan, and I said, uh, it's throw everything and the kitchen sink at it for the gospel. Just everything we can do, right? Like that, just do whatever we can do. That's, that's what we're going to do. And when it comes to leadership development, we're going to try to develop leaders here. We're going to try to develop leaders elsewhere. We're going to try to come alongside people that want to be faithful to what Jesus has called them to do. And that's our hope for you as well. The next core practice that I want us to look at is authentic worship. What's interesting is that authentic worship actually ties into global outreach in a, in a fascinating way that we don't often see the connection, right? Because we think of worship as kind of our little private gathering as God's people. And then we think of global outreach as this, you know, going out to reach other people, they're connected in this, this beautiful way. John Piper says it this way in his book, um, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions exist because worship does not. Does that make sense? Mission, missions exist because worship does not. The, the point of missions is to help more people worship Jesus. The reason we worship Jesus is because of the grace he's shown us by saving us from our sins by giving us life, by adopting us into his family, giving us a purpose, helping us understand how to live our life. And we want to share that with other people. And so these two things are actually related. The way we define authentic worship is this, gathering for worship that is sacred yet understandable. Historically, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's always a sacredness to it. What that means is set apart. It's sanctified. It's different, right? This is not just a football game. This is not just a shopping trip. We're worshiping a holy God. And in the Old Testament, it was very clear that you could only approach him in his holiness by, by a sacrifice. And in the New Testament, it's very clear we can only approach him in worship because of the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of his son, Jesus. We commemorate that when we remember communion, that he is our sacrifice. That's how we come into his presence. It's sacred. And so when we gather, we're going to talk about Jesus. 
We're going to read his word. We're going to do historic Christian things like sharing in communion and having baptisms and singing songs to Jesus and praying prayers to Jesus. And so it's sacred. Yet we also feel like God has called us to make it understandable. 1 Corinthians 14 explains this concept, kind of a principle of understandability, when Paul is correcting the Corinthian church, telling them you're all excited about your uh, flashy displays of the Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying. He's saying, make sure that you're being ruled by love, 1 Corinthians 13, and then when outsiders come in, they can understand what's happening. You don't want outsiders to come in and think you're all insane and not understand anything that's going on. You want them to be able to receive the message in their language. And that's really what we see in Acts 2. When the tongues broke out in Acts 2, they were speaking in different languages by the power of the Holy Spirit so that people from different nations could understand, so they could hear about the mighty works of God. And so that's a tension that different churches work out in different ways. But our hope is that we would always be about Jesus. It'd be sacred, but it would also be understandable. It'd be something that people can comprehend, that outsiders would get what we're doing. We don't think that we can trick someone who doesn't love Jesus into loving Jesus, but we want them to at least understand what we're doing. We want them to hear it and, and make it as uh, attainable as possible to, to get and understand and feel what's going on. So again, we see that in both in Acts chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians 14, that God cares that outsiders would understand what his people are doing. And this is really clear when you read the Psalms. I'm, we're about to start the Psalm series next week. Repeatedly in the Psalms, David and the other psalmists are calling the nations to worship God. They're, they're saying, okay, well, we're going to worship God. God's given us this tabernacle, this temple. We're going to worship God here, but we're always inviting the nations in. Always inviting. It's got to be understandable, and there's got to be a, a, a stance of hospitality, which is a New Testament um, qualification for leadership. Global outreach is this other lane, which, as I said, is connected to authentic worship because we want people to understand, but it's not enough for us to just be understandable when outsiders stumble in, right? We're actually going to go chase after them. We're going to actually go pursue outsiders. And so we're going to go on trips to, to talk about Jesus with people that haven't heard about Jesus before, and we are going to set up strategic partnerships with people who are trying to bring hope to every nation, every people group. So that's our definition here, strategic partnerships with people who bring hope to every nation. That's important to us. We give 10% of our general income back out to people that are trying to evangelize and bring hope and encouragement and bring Jesus to people that don't know about Jesus yet. And so we've got people doing evangelism and church planning and doing mission all over the world, and we want to partner with them. We want to encourage them. As God's people, we bring Jesus with us wherever we go, and we want to partner with gifted people who are doing a good job of, of bringing Jesus into new places. And so we do that. And if you'd like to be a part of that, we'd love to have you on the team. We'd love to get you involved with the mission committee or the global outreach committee who is trying to care for these folks that we partner with all over the world. We'd love to bring you in, have you praying for them, having you partner with them, maybe becoming a financial partner as well yourself. But we believe that's part of the call. Again, going back to what we saw two weeks ago in the Great Commission where he said, make disciples of every people group, every ethne, right? Every ethnic group, every tribe. So it brings me great joy to see how many tribes we have in this room, right? How many people have come in, but that's not enough. We want to go out and we want to reach other people as well. The next, the next one we want to look at is proclaiming Christ. This is a central and foundational practice here. Uh, you can call it preaching. 
when we first started, we called it expository preaching. Um, that's kind of a hard to understand term, so we tried to make that a little simpler. We just call it proclaiming Christ, right? This is our definition, which brings both of those phrases together. Our definition is exposing the Bible for the curious and the committed. Have any of y'all ever heard the term expository preaching before? Some, some of you are knowledgeable about that. So expository preaching in, in the church universe means basically you, you're taking the text and you're, you're exposing it so that people can understand what it means. Um, this, this is going to be a place that we're going to predominantly teach book by book through the scriptures, right? We're going to try to make a practice of letting the scripture lead me more than I lead and then grab a Bible verse to go along with my idea, right? That's kind of a dangerous habit. And so it's not to say that it's evil or wrong for a pastor to go, God, you know, what do you want me to tell my people? And feel like, you know, God's leading him to, to kind of lead in a certain way and, and bring scriptures that support that. But as a habit to kind of guard us against our own hearts and hobby horses, as a habit, we're going we're gonna to just say, elders, what do you think we should look at? What, what books do you think we should study? We're going to pray. We're going to seek the Lord and we're going to look at a book and we're just going to teach it. We're just going to teach through the book. And that's going to help us teach uncomfortable things that I'd rather avoid, right? That's going to help us hit stuff and we're like, all right, well, I guess I got to teach that next week. I'd rather not talk about it, but here we are, right? And so that, that guards our own hearts and helps us to be more faithful to the word. So the word expository, you've got that expose in there. And so exposing the Bible for the curious and committed. When we look back in the book of Acts, we see that what the apostles did was they grabbed examples from uh, pagan poetry, they grabbed examples from creation, and they grabbed stuff from the Old Testament. They used everything they could use to preach Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the judge, and he is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so you see this habit of proclaiming Christ from every text. From everywhere you go, we should be able to make the connection to Jesus. Now he's the fulfillment of this book. The other, well, I have an application for that. Let's go back to that. Proclaiming Christ. Um, As we think about our roles in in this system, uh, I am the uh, chief Christ proclaimer here at this church, right? Like I get to do it uh, most often, most publicly, most loudly. They give me a microphone, right? So so I get to do it the most, but that doesn't mean uh, that we're not all called to do it. Uh, And so in the scriptures, there's this tension where we have different gifts, right? So some of us may be more gifted to evangelize or to preach or to teach the scriptures, but that doesn't mean that um, if you're gifted in administration, then you're off the hook, right? Um, God calls all of us to be a a witness, to to testify to who Jesus is. So some of us may do that more often, may devote, devote more time to that, more study to that, more labor to that. But that doesn't mean we're off the hook. We are all called to do that. And I want to share a verse about that from 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So in your own heart, set aside Jesus as holy. Honor him, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So you should always be prepared to testify to Christ. That doesn't mean that every Christian should preach for six hours every week, but it means that every Christian should, should testify to who he is, to be ready to give an answer when people ask, like, what's up with your life and who, why do you live this way? We should be prepared to give that, that answer, that defense. Uh, if you don't feel equipped to do that, I'd like to give you three verses that would be really helpful for you to learn. Three, three verses that if you feel like I'm not gifted, I don't know how to do this, just, just three verses. A lot of times we call this the Roman road. 
There are three verses in Romans that if you, if you know these three, you've, you've pretty much got the whole gospel in summary form. It's Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 10.9, if, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. It's important that you understand how that all fits together. And I'd, I'd encourage you, of course, to read the context and read the other verses around it. But if, if you memorize those three, then you've kind of got hooks mentally to hang the gospel on, to kind of remember the main ideas. And then that will better equip you to be able to testify when someone does ask, what, what's up? What is, what is this about? Why do you live your life this way? The, the last core practice that we want to look at is missional communities. Missional communities. We're, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ. We see this uh, in the text. So they're not only... Uh, in 242, they're not only devoted to the apostles' teaching, right, to teaching the Scripture, proclaiming Christ, uh, they're also devoted to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so we see this idea, and then later in 45, they were sharing what they had, right? People had come just for this feast at Pentecost, and they were there for a long time. People were running out of money, and they were sharing with each other. So the idea of community, the idea of fellowship, being devoted to fellowship, is that you partner with each other and you share your lives with each other. I think this is the hardest for us as Americans. Again, we've, we say this in the beginning of the service when we were talking about getting involved in a missional community. It's hard because we like to live our lives in isolation, right? There's less conviction, less change, less friction, less disagreements if we just kind of do our own thing. But God calls us to step into the messy pot of living in community. Otherwise, we're not able to fulfill the, the one another's of the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're called on to fulfill these, these one another's, like love one another and forgive one another and be patient with one another. And all of these, they, they don't make sense if you're living your life in isolation because the relationships are too messy. Then, then you never have to be patient, right? You never have to forgive anyone if, if you're a rock, if you're all by yourself. But God calls us to share to have things in common. The word fellowship doesn't just mean meals, right? We, we usually use that. If you grew up in church, you think of a fellowship as a meal after church, which that's a good part of fellowship, right? That's part of being in community with people. But generally in the first century, that word fellowship, koinonia, meant like a business partnership. You were, you were bound to each other. You, you had the same mission. So that's why we use the word missional community. It's not just, hey, let's hang out and play video games. It's, hey, let's be devoted to the same purpose. Let's follow Jesus together. Let's share Jesus with other people in word and in deed. Let's grow in our obedience to what Jesus has to tell us. So it's a missional community, a community with a mission. And that's very important. Oftentimes in church, we have missions. We gather together with other people. We do ministry. We're helping the poor. We're sharing Jesus. We're doing this or that. And we lack community. You need some community there to bond yourselves together. Sometimes we have the community. We hang out. We like each other. We have everything in common. But there's no common purpose. There's no mission. And so as a church, we've said we, we want to bond those two things together. We want to be a missional community full of missional communities where people actually know each other, where you can pray for someone else, where you can be prayed for by someone else. And so we want to challenge you to get involved in that kind of relationship. Missional communities we've defined as small groups of friends growing in faith and bringing hope to their city. Small groups of friends growing in faith and bringing hope to their city. That's our goal. We, we want to see that ripple out and multiply throughout the community. Well, as we conclude talking about the idea of means of grace, I just want to encourage you, remind you that, that God likes to work through simple people like us. 
We are God's plan for the world. We see that in Acts chapter 2. Jesus, what he began to do was in Luke, and what he kept on doing is in Acts through his church. And we're the continuation of that. We're God's people. We're his hands and feet. We're his temple. We're the place where people meet God. And so I want to encourage you by just reminding you of a funny little story in Numbers 22. I don't know if you know this story, but in Numbers chapter 22, God speaks, uh, exhorts, challenges a man named Balaam through a donkey. And so I just want to remind you that if God can speak through someone like me, if God can speak through a donkey, then he can speak through you. God, God is using you and God will use you as you trust him in his grace. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and thank you that you desire to use us. And God, we are humbled that we are your plan, that you want our, your spirit to be poured out through us, that we would be vessels of your grace. We pray that you would continue to lead us as a church as we move forward, as, uh, as you teach us what to do. We pray that we would be guided by your spirit and by your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.